a beautiful day in this neighborhood, a beautiful day for a neighbor. Would you be mine? Could you be mine? Won't you be my neighbor? Won't you please? Won't you please? Please won't you be my neighbor? Hi, neighbors. Hey. I'm going to read you a story about Elephant and Piggy called Should I Share My Ice Cream by Mo Willems. Ice cream. Get your cold ice cream or a hot day. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Ice cream. Ice cream. One ice cream, please. Here you go. Mmm, yum. Oh boy, oh boy, oh boy. I love ice cream. Oh, wait. Piggy loves ice cream too. Piggy is my best friend. Should I share my ice cream with her? Should I share my awesome, yummy, sweet, super great, tasty, nice, cool ice cream? Mm. Maybe Piggy does not like this flavor. Sharing a flavor Piggy does not like, oh, that would be wrong. I will eat the ice cream. Wait. Piggy will like this flavor. It's very yummy. I will share my ice cream. It will not be easy. Hey, Piggy is not here. She does not know I have ice cream. I will eat the ice cream. Where is Piggy? What if she's sad somewhere? I must find her. When I do, I will say, would you like some of my ice cream? Then she will say, well, thank you. That would cheer me up. Then I will give her my ice cream to share. Then my best friend will be happy. I will do it. I will do it. I will do it. I will share my ice cream plop. No. No, Piggy cannot have any of my ice cream. No, I cannot have any of my ice cream. I blew it. You look sad. Would you like some of my ice cream? Thank you. That would cheer me up. Yum. <gasps> that wasn't my my plan. Oh well. This works too. 
Bye. See you next time. All right, be honest. When's the last time you went to church and Mr. Rogers set up the message with a book from Elephant and Piggy? It actually sets the stage perfect for this last part of Paul's letter to the Philippians. If you got your Bible with you, we're in Philippians 4. Uh, I'm going to start in verse 12, which is where we really ended last week. Uh, the passage today starts in verse 14. Paul writes this whole letter, but this, this Minnesota goodbye, this long, drawn-out Minnesota goodbye of his, uh, really, really has an encouraging challenge in it. And that book, if we're willing to listen to it and, and put ourselves into the middle of it, it has an encouraging challenge to us as well. Paul encourages this church in Philippi, but he challenges them at the same time. And that's the same way that we need to be reading it and we need to be understanding it. He's talking about joy and rejoicing and that we need to be people of gratitude. But as he's writing his last words, maybe the last time he ever has a chance to communicate with this beloved church of his, he gives them an encouraging challenge. And so this morning, we're going to get an encouraging challenge. But I want to go back to where we left off last week first. Now, he's in jail. He's in a Roman jail. He doesn't know if he'll get out. He doesn't know if he'll be freed and, and let out on his own. He doesn't know if he's going to be put to death for his crime. And yet he's constantly rejoicing. And in verse 12, he says this, For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul tells us that the secret to contentment, not being happy, the secret to being content, whether he has a lot or whether he has nothing, is recognizing it's Jesus in him. It's Jesus strengthening him is what it is that allows him to have that attitude where his situation and his circumstance doesn't define his attitude. It doesn't change his joy. He's joyful through all those things. And it's that he has this contentment because he knows that it's in Jesus that he can do all things. Have you learned that? Have you found that contentment? Has your personal relationship with Jesus grown to the point that your situation, your circumstances, the things that are happening around you, whether it's good or bad, whether there's a lot of money or there's no money, whether there's people who are treating you well or people who are treating you poorly, are you still content and are you still filled with joy? That's really what Paul wants the people of this church to be able to understand. So he goes on now in verse 14. We're going to get to the last part of his letter. He says, yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. Paul is either incredibly gracious and generous or he's doing something else that we don't quite understand because he's in prison. He has absolutely nothing other than what other people provide for him. He's, cha he's chained to a Roman soldier 24 hours a day, seven days a week, awaiting a trial that may well lead to his execution. And yet he continues to be gracious to these people, to be grateful, saying, you've shared in my trouble. How in the world have they shared in his trouble when they're free, living in one of the most beautiful Roman outposts outside of the actual area around Rome in the world? He's in jail. And yet he's saying that you're sharing in my trouble because they sent them some money and maybe some clothes. What he's doing is, is he's making sure that they understand, even though you hadn't supported my ministry for a long time, You've started again now, I'm grateful. And he, he's speaking of the kindness of their sharing. 
He's including them in his ministry. And, and as we've read Philippians on and on and on, he sees everything that happens to him as an opportunity to preach about Jesus. They've got no, he has nothing and they've got everything. And yet Paul is saying that we've shared in this together. See, their faith is his joy. Their living out in faith is where he finds his joy. He, he has to have this understanding that I just spent a little bit of time with these people, but they continued to grow. And one of the reasons they're showing me that they're growing in faith is that they're helping me again. They're providing to meet my most basic needs. Even if he says, even if I have to sit in jail in order for you to enjoy some of that success, if that's the price, that's okay, because Paul knows there's no greater joy than in giving. It's fun to get things. We all like to get things. But Paul is making the case that as Christians, the greatest joy we have is in giving to others. And I wonder how many of us have learned that lesson. You know, when you're a kid, and maybe this still describes you, when you're a kid, you can't wait for your birthday and for Christmas. Those two are specifically because you know there's going to be presents that are going to be wrapped up with your name on them. They're for you. Somebody went to the trouble of, of getting stuff for you, and, it, and it's all about us. And then you get a little bit older, and, and you reach that age where you realize it's actually more fun to know somebody well enough that you can go out and find something that you know that they're really going to appreciate and really going to enjoy. Maybe they would never buy it for themselves. Which is why when we, when we give a present like that and someone's opening it, it's fun to just sit back and, and to smile. There's joy in giving. And Paul says, I, I appreciate that you've met my needs, but that's not even what I'm thankful for. I'm grateful. I'm thankful that you understand the joy in giving. Verse 15, he says, and you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, the very beginning of his journeys, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except only you. What he's doing is once again, he's making them feel incredibly special. He's saying, when I was at my beginning, when I was just getting started, there was nobody else that helped me out. You have a unique place in the success of my ministry. You've got a unique place where no other church took on to help support me. You did. And when you look back on history, you look back on the mission journeys of Paul and the churches that he planted and what became of them as those churches continued to go and to grow and to, to spread the good news of Jesus out into the world. We realize that what Paul did was set the stage for so much of the start of the early church. And there was one church that funded his effort. This one little church in Philippi. And so what he's doing in his very gracious way is saying, you know what's going on around you. You know the gospel is being spread. You were the only church that partnered to help me do it. And I read that and I think what that passage says to me is that it is just an exclamation point on the importance of the local church, every local church, not just this one, but every local church in our understanding of generosity our willingness to give and our recognition that the world is a much bigger place than just what exists around us. It's, it's, a, it's an highlight that every local church has a need for a financial and a personal commitment to mission. Because this little church in Philippi had a commitment to mission. They were taking care of Paul, but they knew that Paul was going out and doing the work that they wouldn't be able to. And so when, when you give, when you give to the church, when you give to this church, what you give, whether it's in generosity or with grumbling, 
What you give changes eternities for people. And, and he's telling the church in Philippi that, you know, it doesn't matter whether your gift is small or large. When you give to me, things are happening out there. And we need to hear that lesson as well. Right here, 2,000 years later, our church exists because this little church in Philippi helped to sponsor Paul's missions. Part of the reason that we're here is that Paul was able to continue to do mission work and traveled around his part of the world. And so we have to be a church that cares for others. We can't say that's a great footnote to history. That's really cool. The Philippian church did that. That was really nice of Paul to recognize them. No, we've got to look at it and say, what's our place in it? Well, number one, we're the recipients of their generosity because 2000 years later, that gift, gift keeps on giving. But the other thing we've got to realize is that we're a part of the lasting fruit of that ministry of Paul's. They had faithfulness in supporting him. And because of that, we're here today. There's little that we can do as a local church that has a lasting kingdom impact without connecting our dollars to our words. We can say that we believe in, and uh, we want to we want to encourage and we want to get the good news of the gospel out to the people around us. But if we don't actually do it, they're only words. We can say we believe in the Great Commission. We believe that missionaries should be out there doing their thing. But if we don't connect dollars to those words, we're really not a part of the of the solution. So we've got to be a church like the church in Philippi that grows in our faithfulness to God and grows in our commitment to giving to the work of spreading the good news of Jesus to everyone, everywhere, all the time. And that takes hearts of generosity. That takes wallets and purses and bank accounts of generosity. It takes a realization that we are a one small part who's been given so much in a world full of people who don't know Jesus yet. Verse 16, he goes on, he says, Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Again, He's talking about how they have been generous and how gracious he is. And you got to realize this guy's in jail. He could be complaining about everything in his life. Instead, what he's doing is lifting up, encouraging and challenging this church in Philippi. Verse 17, he says, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. This is a challenging one. It's not challenging to understand. It's very simple. It's challenging to live. And this is where he's encouraging, but challenging. This is where it begins. See, Paul does need someone to provide for his basic needs. Without someone helping out, he doesn't have any any different clothes and he doesn't have any food. He needs somebody to care about him and to provide those basic things. But he says, it's not that I seek the gift. That isn't what matters. What, What he realizes is that God blesses generous people. God blesses generous churches. God blesses generous hearts. And that doesn't mean that God's going to give you more money than what you gave to the church. It means God's going to bless you in ways that you never imagined. And God's going to take the little bit that we offer because any one of us, no matter how many zeros are attached to our check, it's a very small drop in a huge ocean of need in this world. But what Paul knows is that their faith grows when they're generous. And he's grateful that God is going to reward that faith and he's going to reward that generosity. And, and, you know, one of the things that's kind of crazy is get emails from ministry all the time. Always, every week, they talk about two things. Congregations hate hearing pastors talk about money. Jesus talked about money more than anything else. And there's this disconnect, and Paul is addressing it. Generosity requires us to give. 
Our giving is multiplied by God to do more than we could ever imagine or ever do on our own. And so one of the things that we've got to come to terms with is we've got to be okay talking about and hearing about and taking an honest assessment of where we each are in our lives in terms of money and the work that God does in the local church. Are you a tithe talker or a tithe giver? Or maybe you're one of those people that says, Jesus never mentioned the word tithe, therefore I don't have to. Okay, my question to folks is, do you feel good about that? And the answer is always not really. Well, then let's quit fighting the obvious and and let's talk about the real situation. What Paul is saying is hearts that are full of joy that give generously. God is going to bless in ways that we can't even imagine. Verse 18, I have received full payment and more. I'm well supplied having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. He's in prison. He's got nothing other than what these people give him. And he's saying God receives that as a pleasant sacrifice, as a pleasing offering. God is grateful for your generosity towards me. Because God knows that Paul is going to use that money and and those clothes and whatever it is that they send him, Paul is going to use that to share the good news of Jesus. It's why I say to you so often when we collect the gifts, tithes, and offerings, on the other side of every dollar that you give is a person that we've got a chance to reach. Can we reach them without money? Sure, we can reach a few. But you know how many more we've been able to reach? As our church has grown a little bit, we've been able to reach more people. And the message is always the same. It isn't how great we are. It's how awesome God is. It's Jesus at work in us. It's joy that can't be taken away no matter the circumstance or the situation. That's what people who are living without hope need to hear. That's the message that we're committed to preaching. Paul understands that. See, he's learned the secret to being content. It isn't about whether you've got a lot or whether you've got a little. It's about having the joy of Jesus in you and always being grateful. And then verse 19, he goes on, and and this is where his encouraging part and where he takes encouragement. He says, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. The key of living in contentment to being content as a person is not worrying and living in joy despite your circumstances and surroundings. If you or I were living in a Roman prison the way Paul is as he writes this letter, we would probably not be the people of joy that Paul is. Because Paul has been tested, he's been pushed, he's been challenged, he's been been just treated so horrifically, and the one thing that's carried him through all of that is a living relationship with Jesus. And most of us have not been challenged like that. But Paul is saying that is where the joy is, that God has everything and he's going to meet your needs according to his riches. And so the, the first thing that we got to come to terms with is this. Do you really believe that it is God who holds in his hands all of the riches of the universe? Do you really believe that that's all in God's control? And then the second thing is, do you trust God to supply every need of yours? It's one thing to say, yep, I I believe that God has it all. Everything is God's. But then do do you also then say everything that I have is God's? Because that's the natural follow-up, right? Think about this. Not a new thought. I've said it before. However much you accumulate in this lifetime, money, vehicles, property, houses, I don't care what it is. Whatever you accumulate, on the moment that you die, it is no longer yours. It goes on to someone else. Maybe you direct how it's transferred, or maybe it's done by a court. But the bottom line is, the moment that you die, that's no longer yours. You are merely a steward. You are merely taking care of it for this lifetime. 
And God is giving it to you, waiting to see how it is that you're going to handle it. Are you going to handle it in generosity or are you going to handle it with selfishness? And what Paul is talking about is God will supply every need, but do we trust God to do that? God, tr- uh, God asks us to trust him. God asks us to trust him, and, and we have no reason not to. He even asks us to trust him with our money, but, but what's interesting to me is the Bible also tells us you should not test the Lord your God except with your money. We are to trust God in everything, but we are not to test God except with our money. And the reason is that it's why Jesus preached so much about the connection that we have to money. 2,000 years ago, it wasn't any different. People got up, they worked hard, they got a little bit of money, they wanted to keep it for themselves, just like you and I do. Jesus talked about money all the time, our connection to our money. But do we really believe that that money is God's and we're stewards of it, we're caretakers of it? Or do we believe that it's ours? Because God says, test me on this. There's no way that we'll outgive God. You might think that giving some loose change or a, a bill or two uh, is being really generous. See, but God knows how much he's actually given you ahead of that. And God says, test me. You think you want to you think you want to find out what it is to give big? Then give big. Let me see what I can do for you. It doesn't mean that you're going to get all that and more back in terms of money. That's an ATM transaction. That's what you do in banks and when you do investments. You hope that you're going to get more than you put in. With God, the blessings are far different than money. They're things that really matter. For one thing, they're treasures in heaven that we store up. They're things that we can take with us when we die. But what's your attitude about money? Is money in your mind better understood as all being God's and you're a, you're a worthy steward of it or do you really truly believe that it's all yours? It's no different than that book that Mr. Rogers just read about elephant, excuse me, about elephant and piggy. We can be so selfish. Admit it, you don't have to admit it out loud. Don't raise your hand. You can be selfish just like I can. You work hard. You don't have as much as you'd like. There's things that you like that you can't have. And so we get selfish and we covet and we hold on to and, and we think that, well, I, I've earned it, so it's mine. I'm going to keep it. But that's not the message that God has in the Bible. God says, you know, whatever you've got, test me on it. Try to outgive me. Try to be more generous to me than I will be with you. It, we come up with these reasons why we shouldn't have to share. And the book highlights it so perfectly. Piggy won't like this flavor of ice cream. We come up with things like, well, people wouldn't really want us to share our stuff because our stuff isn't as, as much as what someone else has. It isn't as nice I, nice. I don't have as much money. Whatever it is, we come up with a reason why God can use someone else to meet someone's need better than us. Uh, why can't someone else offer something that, that is easier for them that doesn't maybe cost them as much as it costs us? When what we really need to understand is that everything we have is given to us by God in the first place. You know, I, I've said this in, in uh, messages on tithing before. What God asks for is simply that we return 10% of what he's given us to give back to the local church. And that's God's way that the church is able to carry out the mission that God's called the church to. See, different churches have different calls and different missions. And, and God's called them to different things and to accomplish different purposes. And he brings different people in different numbers. But you know what? The tithe works out to cover all of the expenses that the church has to do the ministry that God has called us to do. It's amazing how that works out. Unfortunately, we want what we want and we want it now and it's really hard for us to give. 
That's why Jesus talks so much about money and people don't like it when pastors do. But the fact of the matter is, there's the hearing, there's the believing, and then there's the doing. And those are three big steps for us to take. When we're only focused on ourselves, when we're looking in, not up and out, when, when we're concerned only about ourselves, not giving to or, or meeting the needs of others, do you know the first thing that we run short of? It isn't money. It's joy. Because we're not content. We're just looking for more for ourselves. We run out of joy because we think it comes from money. But joy begins with a personal living relationship with Jesus. That's what Paul makes so clear. Paul remembers his life, and he had a good life before he met Jesus. His life, in in human earthly terms, was miserable after he met Jesus. But you know what? The Bible doesn't talk about Paul being joyful or celebrating before having a personal relationship with Jesus. Once meeting him, it's all he can talk about. Once we have a personal living relationship with Jesus, our attention goes to others. How can we help? What has God given me here on earth that I can use to help someone else? What is it that I can do with my time or my abilities or my finances to help other people who might be need, might be in need? How can we give of our abundance to help people like Paul who maybe don't have as much as we do? Because you never know how God is going to multiply whatever you're willing to give in ways that we can never imagine and do something truly great with it. In the book, Elephant missed out on the joy of giving because he was selfish and he came up with all kinds of reasons why he shouldn't have to share. By the time he made the decision want to, he had nothing left to share. His selfishness had cost him his ice cream. And yet there was Piggy, and Piggy was willing to share with Elephant. And his realization, well, this wasn't my plan. Are we living our lives for ourselves or are we living our lives for God? Elephant missed out on the joy of giving because of his selfishness. Selfishness, and that's what Paul's talking about. Paul is encouraging the Philippian church, but he's challenging. We don't give in order to get. That's an ATM transaction. We get the experience of realizing the joy of giving when we're generous with our giving. And that's what God's talking about. That's the blessing. You know, in, in 22 years of professional ministry... I've talked, I don't know how many times, on giving and finances and, and offering. And never once have I said, because the church needs the money. What the Bible makes clear is that we need to give. T- tithing is about our recognizing that everything we have is a, is a gift from God. It's about giving back a small portion and being able to keep 90% of that for ourselves. And you know, in all those 22 years, never one, I've had people who've been angry about the sermons. I've had people say, quit talking to me and quit stepping on my toes. And I hate churches that talk about money. Well, Jesus talked about money a lot. The one thing I've never had is someone who said, I wish I wouldn't have tithed. I wish I would have never started tithing. What I hear over and over and over again is when I made the commitment to tithe, I realized 10% wasn't enough. Because there's a joy in giving, there's a blessing in giving that finances, that money can't compete with. I've never heard generous people say, you know what, I've just been too generous. Why? Because God is generous. God is trustworthy. God is a promise maker and a promise keeper. And God is worthy of our worship and our praise and our love. So if you've got a God who is trustworthy, Why in the world do we not trust him? 
See, life isn't about you deciding whether God is trustworthy or not. God is trustworthy. 2,000 years of human history are recorded in the New Testament, and it goes well beyond that into the Old Testament. God is trustworthy. God is a God of his word. Life isn't about you deciding if God is trustworthy. God is trustworthy. Life is about deciding if you will trust God. That's what life is about. So who are you going to trust? Who are you going to give your life to? What are you going to put your trust in? If you put your trust in money, I have a feeling a day is coming when the money is going to fail you. And whatever joy you have in having money is going to leave when the money leaves. But if your joy is in Jesus and you have a heart of generosity, your joy will grow and grow and grow. So who are you going to trust and who will you give your life? What Will you give your life? What will you put your trust in? I heard a quote recently, and I, I couldn't find out who, who said it. I think it's quite recent. I think it's a, a, a preacher pastor out there somewhere. But the quote is this. Jesus slept during the storm, and when you learn to trust God, you will too. America right now has got more people who can't sleep because they're nervous and they're afraid and they're stressed out than ever before in the history of them taking those, those uh, surveys. Jesus slept during the storm, and when you trust in God, you will too. That is so beautiful. Rest in God and no rest. Don't rest in God and don't know rest. Jesus slept in the storm, and if I'm learning, willing to learn to trust him, I will too. There's nothing more that God has to show or to give or to offer to earn your trust. He's already done it, and the name is Jesus. God's already given everything to us. How can we not trust a God who died for us when we didn't even believe in him and all he asks of us is that we live for him? How do we not trust that God? Verse 20, he says, Paul says this, To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul reminds us that our lives aren't ours at all. Paul reminds us that our lives are to be lived for the glory of God, not for our own fame, not for our own attention or recognition, but for God's glory. And if we're going to live for God's glory, we need to live with the joy of Jesus and we need to have a heart of generosity because God first was generous with us. Verse 21. He's wrapping it up, the book of Philippians. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. I have read the book of Philippians, I don't know how many times. For some reason, this is the first time I saw that phrase. Let me read it again. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. How does he know that? He's in jail. Paul's a name dropper. He's sending him a greeting from the people that are in Caesar, the emperor, the main man in Rome. He's sending him a greeting from all those people. How is that possible? Paul is bringing this little church in Philippi into the ministry, into the growing church that he's a part of in Rome and saying it's because of your generosity that Caesar's household knows Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean that Caesar does. He doesn't say that. He talks about the household. He talks about the gathered people, the extended family, the servants, the slaves, the people who spend their time working there, who have heard the good news of the gospel of Jesus. How is that possible? Some from the preaching and teaching of Paul. But remember, every day he's chained to a Roman soldier Six-hour shifts, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Those guys are, are Emperor Caesar's private guard. That's how important a prisoner Paul was. Those guys were going back to Caesar's house, and they are going, you got no idea what this guy just told me. 
And they are bringing the good news of the gospel to Jesus through the front doors of Caesar's house to the family and the household and the servants and the slaves that live there. And they're having their lives changed because they're meeting Jesus as their personal Savior. And Paul is saying it is because of your generosity that that's happening and those people send their greeting. When we live as Christians and we're willing to tell people why we believe in Jesus and we're willing to live in a way that's consistent and generous in those beliefs, we have no idea what God is going to do with that money or that message. We have no idea the impact that he will have. Our responsibility is to share the good news and let God do with it whatever it is that he will. It's like the person holding the sign on the corner that I talked about last week. Your responsibility is not to see that they spend that money in what you deem to be an appropriate way. Your responsibility is to live out the love of Jesus with them and everybody else around. Our job isn't to make a decision about someone's situation. Our job is to shine the light of Jesus on their situation. And Paul is saying because of the generosity of that church, Caesar's household knows Jesus. His last phrase, this is the last thing he may ever say to them. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. The grace of Jesus is with our spirit. If we are filled with the godly grace of Jesus from the inside, if we are filled with the Holy Spirit, we are most certainly filled with the joy of Jesus. And there's no way in the world that can't spill out into the dark and dying world around us. Contentment. And trust and joy. They all work together in God's will for us. There, there is joy in generosity. When we learn to trust God, we find contentment that we wouldn't otherwise have. When we trust God and we have that contentment and that all of, all of what we have comes from him and that Jesus is going to take care of everything that we need, there is a joy that follows. There's a joy in living for Jesus. Remember, Jesus slept during the storm. When you learn to trust God, you will too. If you're having a hard time resting, if you're having a hard time with peace or contentment or joy or generosity, learn to trust Jesus. We serve a trustworthy God. For many of us, for many of us, that barrier to saying, I understand, I believe it, I want to live that out, that barrier exists with your wallet, with your purse, with your bank account, with your credit card. It, it's a barrier of the wants rather than a, an act of God's will. God wants us to be generous. God wants us to be good stewards. God wants us to be people of generosity. And, and so here we come to the end. The, the, these are the last words that Paul speaks to this church in Philippi. Sixteen times he's used the word rejoice. He talks about joy at every turn. So we're at the end of this book, but we're at the beginning of a decision for you. I said that this was going to be an encouragement and a challenge. The encouragement is that you can be content in every circumstance and every situation, no matter what it is, if you trust in Jesus. The challenge is, are you willing to live out that trust in Jesus in practical ways? Are you willing to live it out so that the people around you see the light of Jesus shining in the darkness of the world that they live in? So we end this look at the book of Philippians, but you've got an opportunity to begin to choose joy. Choose generosity, choose Jesus, choose others, and then take care of yourself. We're ending this and, and we're going into Holy Week now. So we've got uh, Palm Sunday coming up and then we've got Good Friday dramas and then we've got Resurrection Sunday. We get to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. After this, look at Philippians. We're going to take a long, very in-depth look 
at what does the Christian church look like when they do this stuff. We're going to go to the book of Acts, and we're going to take small pieces and parts every week, and we're going to work our way through it over a long period of time to understand what the church did right and what the church did wrong, where they lived in joy, where they lived in generosity, and where they lived in selfishness, because there's examples of all of it. The very first Christian church is no different than the church of today. What we want to do is we want to make sure that we understand how to live as the very best Christians and the very best disciples of Jesus that we can. And that begins with living in joy and choosing generosity with all of the things that God has provided to us. When you are willing to give of your abundance, you have no way of knowing what God can do with that. You have no way of knowing how he can multiply. But you'll never know until you start. Let's pray. Gracious God, thank you for this man named Paul, this real guy, not some, some superhero comic book character or some, some Marvel character, but actually a real man. We, we know his life story. We, we know where he came from and how he lived, and we know what happened to him, and we have his letters, his own words. And God, it's just beyond me how he was able to maintain contentment and joy given the things that happened to him. And yet, God, he knew that he was in every one of those situations as an opportunity to share the good news of Jesus with the people who were around him. God, I pray that we would see the world that same way. That we would see the world in a way that sees opportunities to share the good news of who you are, what Jesus has done for us to people who are truly are in a place that is dark and dying, that have no hope. They do not know peace. They don't know contentment and they don't know joy. What we see on the news and what we hear all over is anger and frustration and dis- disappointment, despair, discouragement. God, none of those things are from you. Those are all from the enemy. You are a God of peace of contentment, of love, of joy, of generosity. Help us to be people who bring that out into the world, who are disciples and examples of what it is to live in joy because of Jesus in us. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Uh, we got one more song before we go. Here's the deal. Uh, you have an opportunity to do something that the world doesn't understand, but you get to do it anyway. And that is that you get to shine the light of Jesus into the darkness of the world that people are living in that don't know him. They don't understand why you would have joy. They don't understand why you would be happy. They don't understand why you would be content, why you would be able to rest when the world seems so restless. And that's because of the light of Jesus that lives in you. And so as you go out of here today, look for opportunities and accept the opportunities that God presents to be a follower of Jesus that gets to shine his light in the world around you that is in darkness and in despair.